please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse uh, verses 1 through 18 is where we're going to pitch our tent uh, on this morning. I am uh, starting a new series. We are starting a new series called Living Faith. It's a series in which we take a deep dive into the book of James. And the book of James is very much a book about how the faith is being lived out in real and practical ways. James is writing a letter to the people of God on how to live out their faith in a authentic but grounded sort of way. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus, if you, if you didn't know that. But you wouldn't know that based on the introduction that we have in the book of James, or in the letter of James, rather, the first chapter, the first verse. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now notice, James doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus. And we could think of a few reasons as to why. Number one, his authority is a spiritual authority, not a natural authority. He doesn't have any authority to lead and has, he doesn't have any authority to guide people based on him being Jesus' natural half-brother. But instead, his authority is rooted and grounded in his divine appointment. His authority is based on his appointment as an apostle and as a leader of the Lord's church, not Jesus's natural half-brother. But there may be a second reason in which he doesn't mention his relationship or his relation to Jesus as his natural half-brother. His reverence for Jesus transcends mere natural relationships. We know from the scripture, uh, from the scriptures that Jesus' siblings didn't always feel this way about Jesus like James does in this letter that he writes. Well, when we look at John chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, it even says that Jesus or Jesus' brothers did not believe. They disbelieved. They were unbelieving, rather, as it relates to Jesus and his Messiah, his, his messianic uh, mission on earth. Now, James was a brother, I'm sure, that watched Jesus grow up. He was a brother that ate with Jesus. He was a brother that watched Jesus sleep. He was a brother that possibly teased Jesus. He knew Jesus in his humanity more intimately than pretty much anybody walking on the face of the earth. And yet we hear from the very beginning of this letter that we're reading, James addressed Jesus as Lord and James addressed Jesus as Christ. Messiah, Savior, but we also hear him address himself as servant, servant of God the Father and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this treatment that James gives to Jesus serves as further evidence that Christ was truly more than a man because those who knew him most intimately in his humanity had to declare and submit to his divine lordship. Now, normally after the initial greetings in an ancient letter, the author of the letter would give a few uh, pre preliminary or primer thoughts before jumping into the heart of the message. But no such thing happens in this message. This is not the case with James. He launches immediately from greeting to practical instruction. We can tell from the beginning, James's concern is a faith lived on the ground in a practical, authentic way. 
So over the next five chapters and over the next several weeks, we are going to learn what that practical on the ground faith looks like. We're going to learn what faith looks like when it is applied, how it changes our speech and how it changes our attitude and how it changes our pursuits and how it changes our motivation and changes our view of our neighbor. It is a fire hydrant of drowning us rather with application. Even in the first chapter, James has a ton to get off his chest, so we get a rapid fire of topics that appear to almost come out randomly, but upon second look, you can see a few themes begin to peek out from the text. One theme in particular is how our faith is lived out in the midst of suffering, and that's the thing that we want to put all of our focus on this morning. So with that being said, I want to deal with three thoughts this morning. Number one, what should we do when we suffer? Number two, why should we do that thing that we do when we suffer? And number three, how can we do that thing that we do when we suffer? First, what should we do with our suffering and when we suffer? Number uh, Verse two, it says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice something about James's words here. Count it all joy. He in no way is expecting us to immediately be filled with joy in the face of suffering. What he's saying is consider it joy. He understands the most natural and the most reasonable oftentimes reaction in the face of suffering is not joy. It's anger sometimes. It's fear sometimes. It's frustration and resentment. It can even be doubt. But let those words that James speaks, let those words flood over you. Count it all joy. Consider it joy, even when it's difficult to consider joy. The anger, the frustration may be what feels natural. But instead of dwelling on what feels natural and allowing that to take you under, James says, count it all joy. Now, notice something else. James doesn't offer any qualifiers regarding the chances of suffering in this life, particularly as a Christian. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you suffer. The question is not if we will suffer. The question is when we will suffer. The question isn't even what type of suffering we should, uh, should, um, we should experience, but rather even in this text, we don't even know the type of suffering the recipients of this letter are dealing with. It certainly can be persecution. It, it certainly can, you know, because obviously persecution was a very prominent type of suffering for the New Testament church. It could be poverty, Because as we'll see throughout this sermon series, James deals often with the relationship between rich and poor. Oftentimes we hear him encouraging the poor in this this letter and offering stern warnings for the wealthy in this letter. But instead, James isn't concerned about a particular kind of suffering when he calls us to count it all joy. He even says as much in this same verse. He says, count it all joy. My brothers, listen, when you meet trials of various kinds, trials of different shapes, trials of different sizes, trials of different types, 
test of persecution, for example, test of poverty, test of sickness, and test of hardships. So what do we do with this suffering? We count it all joy when the suffering comes, no matter what the suffering looks like when it comes. Now, here's the next question. Why? Why should we count it all joy? James gives us the reason in verse 3. He says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why should we count it all joy? Because suffering has a purpose. Suffering has a purpose. We say it here often that Jesus never waste our tears, that God does not waste our tears. Another pastor says it this way, in God's providence, you have bad days on purpose. The first word we need to place our attention on in the in verse 3 is the word testing. We must fundamentally understand that the suffering God allows in the life of the righteous are our tests. We call them trials for a reason. And let me talk about America for a second. Now, we're very blessed, obviously, to live in America and enjoy religious freedom in this country, to enjoy the type of freedom where we can worship without obstruction or obstacle. But as big of a blessing as it is to worship in this country freely, it could also be a hindrance as well. Let me explain. Our ability to worship freely can at times leave us with less less adversity to actually test the authenticity of our faith. Don't hear me as saying I don't want religious freedom. I love my religious freedom. I want and enjoy my religious freedom. But I do fear that while it can make worship easier, it can also at times make the uncovering of true faith more difficult. No matter what you think about how our local and state and federal government is handling this pandemic, for example, the fact that you have some Christians willing to define some of the actions that negatively impact our ability to worship right now, the fact that you have some Christians defining that as persecution is all the sign that you need to realize that we enjoy an incredible amount of freedom to worship, so much so that maybe we don't even know how to define persecution should it come to our border, should it come to our borders. Now, this can be a good thing. Again, religious freedom, nothing wrong with religious freedom. But this can also be a way for us to remain untested in our true allegiance. I've read and, and, and witnessed in my own life more times than I care to count stories of Christians who were initially very vocal about their Christianity, and then trials came, tribulation came, suffering came into their lives. I've seen pastors, laymen, celebrity Christians, unknown Christians. I've seen them all succumb to the moment of testing. The trial shows up and then shortly thereafter, their faith is no more. Now, I won't speak ill, lest too I fall. That's not my point. My point is, is that the version of Christianity 
that we have in this culture, in this context, oftentimes comes without testing. And the moment that testing arrives, that Christianity vanishes. The danger exists in all cultures of having that suffering unveil our true allegiance, but it exists in this culture in an immeasurably more evident way. And so I think we have to be concerned about that. You see, one of the very purposes of suffering in the life of the Christian is testing to see whether your faith is authentic or your faith is built on something else, your career, your family, your gifting, your success. The suffering is sometimes a test to see whether your Christianity or the Christianity you live out is really just a ruse to please your family or your spouse or just a ruse to continue to hold family traditions or just a ruse to appear to be a better person to your peers. And sometimes the the only time that we find out what is real and what is fake is when the things that are really, that really own our hearts start being taken away from us. Suffering does that. Suffering tests the foundation for soundness. But here's another thing that suffering does. It makes the foundation sound. So it tests the foundation for soundness, but it also makes the foundation sound. Look again at verse 3 and 4. So it says, for you know that testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In suffering, the authenticity of our faith is revealed, but also in suffering, the foundation of our faith is fortified. Suffering reveals what foundations our heart is fixed upon, but suffering also deepens and fortifies those foundations. Oftentimes, the suffering, suffering exposes us, but, but, but it is not always an exposure that leads to a falling away. There are also times the exposure quickens us and grabs our attention and shows us that maybe we've trusted too much in certain things that can bring us true eternal life, that maybe we've placed the waters of our soul in leaky jars. Suffering deepens our faith because it strips our faith of the non-essentials. How many of you share this testimony? That there are some things that you would would have never learned without certain trials that have transpired in your life. That you are a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father. That you are a better and wiser single. That you are a better worker on your job. That you are a better man, a better woman, a better Christian because of the trials that you've endured. Marvin Sapta wonderful and popular gospel singer says it best with his beautiful voice in one of those popular songs that you and I have heard over and over again. Never would have made it. Never could have made it without you. I would have lost it all, but now I see how you were there for me. And I can say now what? That I'm stronger. I'm wiser. I'm better, much better when I look back over all you've brought me through stronger, wiser, better. Why? Because of the suffering, because of the trial. Suffering is refining for us. Suffering is 
sanctifying us. Suffering is molding us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Not just for this life, but more importantly for the next life. By the way, this too is another problem with our American culture. We have no use for suffering. Even our Christianity in this culture is shaped by this this YOLO identity that you you only live once. We live like there is no other life to live. And because those both outside the church and inside the church live like that's a reality, when we suffer in this life, we have no use for it. When we suffer in this life, it's like throwing a wrench into, into the one and only life that I have. James is saying, no, 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 no. God is using this to mold you into the person he desires for you to be, the person he has destined for you to be, not just for this life, but for eternity. That is why you count it all joy. Because you can say that in this suffering, God is preparing me. He is deepening my hope. He is fortifying the foundations of my heart so that they rest more more deeply and more securely in Jesus while molding me more and more into his image. You know, Paul and Peter both testify with James of this call to rejoice in sufferings. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Peter has a similar testimony in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what what should we do with suffering? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Why should we count it all joy? Because God's purpose for our suffering is to test our faith and to prove its authenticity but also to strengthen our faith, to fortify our faith so that we may continue to stand in the harshest of circumstances. Let's wrap this up by answering one last question for this morning. How can we do this? How can we count it all joy when we face suffering? Number one, we pray. We pray. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, this text is often used to make a general statement about wisdom, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But more than likely, this is a statement about a particular type of wisdom. Can you guess what that wisdom might be? 
the wisdom to navigate through suffering. Now, we all want canned answers when it comes to suffering. We want canned reasons. We want clear, clear guidelines in our suffering. But you know what, what can be the worst thing to happen to us in the midst of suffering, in the moments of suffering? Getting a rehearsed, canned answer to our suffering. You know, when you read the book of Job, one thing that you notice is that, 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 that you have to, that you're forced to wrestle with in the complexity of Job's suffering is that his friends all came with answers. And under difficult, in different circumstances, rather, those answers might have proven to be useful. But under Job's particular circumstances, they were heart-wrenching. They were not helpful. So in the midst of suffering, we need wisdom. Wisdom to speak. Wisdom when to remain silent. Wisdom when to act. Wisdom when to pause. And so in order to walk through suffering in a way that leads to joy and in a way that fortifies our faith rather than damages it, we need wisdom and we need to pray in order to receive that wisdom. Here's the second thing that we can do in order to count it all joy when we suffer. Pray with a single allegiance. Look at verse 6. But let him act in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, most of us have grown up hearing this text preached in such a way where we believe the key to this prayer being answered is to pray with no uncertainties at all. In fact, this is oftentimes what Prosperity gospel um, advocates ground their praying style in. They say that the reason that you don't have what you prayed for is because when you prayed, you had uncertainty. Or when you prayed, you had doubt. But prayer with certainty, prayer with certainty, of course, is important, but I don't believe this is the point of James's words here. I believe the type of doubt that James is referring to here is a little deeper than that. In fact, I believe that it's more fatal than that. Let me let Douglas Moo, Dr. Douglas Moo, New Testament theologian, let me let him explain what I'm saying here. He says this, in quote, James is probably thinking of a strong kind of doubting, a basic division within the believer that brings about wavering and inconsistency of attitude toward God. Paul uses the same word in his description of Abraham's faith. Abraham, Paul says, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Paul, of course, is well aware that Abraham did, in fact, doubt God's promise on at least one occasion, greeting God's promise about his son with laughter. But Paul's point is not that Abraham never entertained any doubt about God's promise, but that Abraham over many years displayed a consistency in his faith in God. James is not then here claiming that prayers will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists. For some degree of doubt on at least some occasions is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. Rather, 
He wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity, end quote. Moo's point is this. James is saying that when we pray, we cannot pray with double allegiance. James is saying you cannot have one foot in the world and in its systems and in its ways and in its wisdom and one foot in the kingdom of God and in its ways and in its and in his wisdom and praying to God for wisdom and expect to receive that wisdom. James is saying if your mind is doubly aligned in such a way where your allegiance, for example, is first to your success, or your allegiance is first to your family, or your allegiance is first to a relationship rather than to God himself, then when suffering comes, and maybe suffering comes even in a way that challenges or takes one of those things from you, that in the middle of that, when you say, God, give me wisdom, you should not expect to receive that wisdom that you need to navigate that suffering in a way that leads to joy and leads to growth. In Christ. And why do you ask? Because you're double-minded. Because your allegiance is assigned in two places. James calls that instability. You have or you, you are without spiritual integrity. You know, sometimes our inability to navigate sufferings that we, suffering that we experience in, in this life, our inability to, na- to navigate it in a healthy way is a result of our lives being too entangled in the things of the world. Even at times, the very things that we suffer the loss of. And so it is for this reason that suffering can at times serve as a moment of reckoning for us. At times, suffering can serve as a moment to see where our hearts are and a moment to to, to first ask God in that moment to align our hearts with his, to, to give us singular focus, and that focus being him and him alone, so that when we pray, we're praying with a singular allegiance. Lastly, number one, we pray. Number two, we pray with a single allegiance. Lastly, we discern. Look at verse 13 through 18. It gives us two ways, and we're going to wrap this up, two ways to process testing in our lives, process trials in our lives. The first way is verses 13 through 15. It says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, oftentimes when we face suffering, the quickest response in the face of suffering is to start moving away from God and then blame God for the moving away. You you sometimes hear it said that I turned away from God because he didn't fix those hypocrites that were around me. The church hurt me so deeply, and that's why I left God. You may hear it said that I turned away from God because he took someone from me that that I deeply, deeply, deeply loved. You may hear it said that I turned away from God because he let them fire me on my job, and he took away my livelihood. From me, You may hear it said that I turned away because God had, ha, has not 
or had not fixed my husband or fixed my wife like I asked them to and, 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 and made them more of what I needed them to be. And that's why I did what I did. You know, we have all sorts of reasons in the midst of difficulty why we succumb to sin and turn away. And we have all sorts of reasons as to, as to why we do that, but then we oftentimes, the reasons always or many times lead back to God, putting the blame at his feet. James, however, instead turns the spotlight back on us. And he says, no, 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 no. What leads you away from God is not God. What leads you away from God is you, your own sinful heart. In fact, James connects it to a spiritual affair. He says the temptation of your own desire to be in control, to set your course or to rule your life or to be your God comes, comes and it lures you and entices you until you engage that desire. And once you engage that desire, it conceives and it gives birth to sin. And as we continue to look for others to blame, that sin continues to grow until it has taken us completely out of fellowship with God and placed us on our own island, blaming the God who never put us there in the first place. This is not the way to handle the testing and the trials of our lives. And I know the difficulty of handling these tests and handling these these trials But I'm begging you, saints, to be more discerning. Take a deep breath in the moment of struggle. Don't turn your back on the Lord and don't assign blame where it is not, where it does not originate. Instead, there's another way, the right way. And it's found in the last verse this morning, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, God has, nor will he ever do anything to harm you. Should suffering come, It is for his glory, and it is for your eternal joy. James says, don't be deceived, brothers. I know what you want to do. I know you want this moment to be the, I know know sometimes in your heart, rather, in the midst of your flesh, there's this urge to, to, to quit and then to assign the blame on God and say, well, God is the reason why I quit this. James says, don't be deceived. The God what God is bringing you, what God is allowing, anything God gives is a good gift and a perfect gift. Anything God gives is coming, the, is coming from one who does not change. That's what it means to have no variation or shadow. He is unchanging. Anything that God gives will be eternal and everlasting. That's what it means to, to participate, to be the kind of first fruits. It is we are, we are tasting only a, 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 a mild or a small foretaste of that which God is bringing us and that which God is giving us. He says that 
Through his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, our salvation is a type of foretaste that he, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ coming to earth in the form of humanity and taking on the burden of humanity, the the burden of humanity's sin, absorbing the penalty, taking the penalty for our sins on the cross, rising from the grave, and then in opening up the invitation so that anyone that would trust him, anyone that would repent of their sins and turn towards him for salvation would be saved. That that is a reflection of the good gifts that God gives and what God is desiring for uh, of us and what God is desiring for you and I to do in the moment of suffering is to remember that he was the one who gave that good gift. And if he gave that good gift, he will withhold no other gifts from you. That everything he is doing is leading to that moment in eternity where the tears will be no more, the suffering will be no more, the pain and the agony will be no more. Everything he is doing is building towards that one moment. So do not be deceived in this moment. Do not be deceived. If you got family suffering from COVID, do not be deceived. If you got family that are suffering loss, do not be deceived. If you got family that are struggling, poverty has risen in your home, bills are due, do not be deceived. If you are struggling in your body, do not be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from a God, is from a God who sits above. He will not waste your tears. He is producing in you the authenticity or the, or the verification of your faith, but he is also producing a stronger foundation, the steadfastness of your faith. So continue to stand. Continue to stand. Continue to stand until he calls us all to glory. Would you please?